Okay, church, if you could please open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. We're going to be picking back up in verse 25. Last week we were not in 1 Corinthians. If you were with us, we had a speaker from the Gideons to update us about their fantastic ministry around the world. And this week we are jumping right back into 1 Corinthians. Last time we stopped in verse 24, so we'll pick back up in verse 25. But before we get into this, I want to give kind of an opening illustration for us to think about to kind of set up our idea. I have two fantastic children over here. They are just wonderful. Even if they shake their heads right now, they are just wonderful. It's, it's a joy to get to raise them. Well, my fantastic kids sometimes argue. Who'd have thunk, right? Kids argue. Uh, sometimes they argue with one another. Sometimes it develops into a small fight with which we have to referee. Sometimes they argue with me and Stacy. They always lose. Me and Stacy are the best, okay? They always lose that. But it's interesting when they're arguing with one another, one of the arguments we get into, maybe you can relate to this, is all over this question. Who gets to go first? Anybody ever had to settle a dispute between who gets to go first? All the parents said, amen. <laughs> I've noticed, though, it depends a little bit on what exactly it is that we're saying what we're going to do first or second. For instance, we have a Nintendo Switch, and there's only one. So if they're both going to play it one day, one has to play, and then the other gets to play. They could play together, but they never want to play the same game. So it's got to be one and then the other. Well, then there's this argument, okay, well, who gets to go first? Well, you went first last time. Well, I, but no, but I went first last time. You don't remember correctly. Oh, but, okay, but you went first last time, but then you also got to play for so much longer, I should get to go first. So this argument develops, but you know when this doesn't happen. When we talk about, okay, who's going to take a shower first? Now there's no argument. Strange. Hey, who's going to do your chores first? No argument. It's a mystery. Why is it that this happens? What do these things reveal in my kids? It reveals what they value. It reveals what they value. To use a Bible word here, it reveals what they are worshiping in that moment. Something is threatening what I find value in, and I don't like that. So we divide, and we create this tension between us because of those things. So here's the main idea this morning for us. Division in the church is a worship issue and can become a faith issue. Division in the church is a worship issue and can become a faith issue. So we need to remember as we go back into the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul's topic right now is division in the church. If we were to take this passage and rip it out of that context and try to find meaning in it, we would fall short of what God intends. He placed it exactly right here for a reason, and it's in the context of division. Last time, we looked at how the power of the gospel isn't in how it's proclaimed, but it's in the message itself. The way that it hits the hearer depends more on whether or not that person is perishing, that is, of the world, or being saved, that is, to be a child of God. This points to God's wisdom and power. So this week, Paul is going to shed a little bit more light on how and why this points to God's wisdom and power. It's related, but it's different in a crucial way we'll see in just a moment. Last time, I want you to think about the what and then this week as the why and the how. We know what is powerful. Now we're going to get into more why, and we're going to include in that 
why is it important for us to understand this in light of the division we see in Corinth and then potentially that might come up in our own church? So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 25. I would invite everyone to stand together for the reading of God's word. Just as a reminder, this is a physical posture of what we already internally affirm. This is the divine word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate your word to us this morning. As you have divinely inspired every word that we just read, we now ask that you would divinely apply it to us in transforming our hearts and in renewing our minds that we might test and approve your good, pleasing, and perfect will. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So as we get started here, you'll notice that I'm starting in verse 25. I believe in most of your translations. I haven't looked at every single translation. I believe that most of your translations will have verse 25 at the end of that preceding paragraph. I view this verse in light of Paul's argument as a good transition point. So I've chosen to stop at 24 the last time and pick up in 25 this time. We need to remember Paul is still addressing division in the church over different teachers. And this verse bridges a couple of related ideas as Paul is instructing the Corinthians about why their division is wrong and damaging. He says the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, when Paul talks about the foolishness and the weakness of God, he's not suggesting that there are moments when God might be described as foolish or weak. There is not a single ounce of foolishness or weakness in God. He never has those moments, unlike us who have those moments all the time. That being said, even if God were to have a slight moment of weakness or foolishness. Even in that moment, he would trump man's wisest, strongest moments. But that doesn't really carry the full weight of what he's saying here. Paul is talking about the foolishness of God according to the Greeks. The weakness of God according to the Jews. If you back up and look at verse 22... 
He says, for Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. So it's not that the gospel is folly. The gospel is folly to those to whom it is being proclaimed. They view it as foolish and weak. The Jews want a powerful sign, and the Greeks want reason. But the gospel, Jesus' death on the cross for sinners to be saved, was viewed as being weak and foolish to them. So putting this together, what Paul is saying is that the foolishness and weakness of the gospel is wiser and stronger than whatever men might make up or do if they were the ones in charge. If it was up to us, we might not choose to send a crucified Savior. If it was up to us, we might arm the armies of heaven and say, okay, storm the gates, let's go. But God does not act like we act. We looked at last week. His ways and thoughts are higher than ours. So God does not do this like we do. And now Paul is going to show why. Verse 29, we're going to go down just a little bit before we come back. This is the purpose. This is why. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So this is what God is working out through the foolishness and weakness of the gospel. God has done this on purpose. The gospel is intentionally not that sign of power, and it's intentionally not that realm of reason that those are looking for. God intentionally did not do that in order that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is so that no one can say, I did it. I figured it out. I pieced it together the right way. I correctly interpreted Jesus' sign. Hey, Jesus, I got the parable. But we don't see that in the Gospels, do we? We see the disciples coming to Jesus, and they, and they get him in private, and they say, oh, teacher, that was great. Hey, what did that mean? And then Jesus says, do I, do I really have to explain this to you? He wants us to see that we cannot get the credit for these things. We don't get the credit for our salvation. God has so orchestrated the gospel toward that end. So with that knowledge in mind, I want to go back now to verse 26, and then we will catch up to that point. Look at verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Now, before I finish in verses 27 and 28, I want you to notice a pattern here. I'm going to start by pointing out that Paul is going to defend his statement that God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom. God's power is greater than man's power. He's going to defend that by addressing their calling. Verse 26, how does he defend it? Well, brothers, I want you to consider your calling. In the New Testament, the word calling and the idea is often used in reference to salvation. We see it coupled with the act of being born again or saved, and a lot of times it's used synonymously. It's the moment that one has faith. I'm going to give you one example here out of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Speaking about God, it says, He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So God saves and God calls. This is the holy calling in view. 
There's countless verses. We don't have time to do a word study on calling, but I do want to share one more passage that we've looked at intimately before. It's John chapter 6, the bread of life discourse, and Jesus hits on the same idea, though he uses slightly different language here. I've selected this because we've gone through this. This language should be familiar with for us. John 6, starting in verse 36 and 37. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verses 63 through 65. I'm just going to read Jesus' dialogue here to keep, it, to keep his thought. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So for the sake of time, we'll stop right there. But the idea behind calling, as we see in John 6, is that God draws us by his Spirit. There is a work of the Spirit that leads us to Jesus where we were not heading that way before. The vocabulary is that he draws or he gives. Without this drawing or leading or giving of the Father by his Spirit, we cannot come to Jesus. Now this is a hard pill for us to swallow sometimes because we think, well, but I'm in control of my life. I make decisions, and yes, that is true. You make decisions all the time. But what the scriptures teach is that apart from God's drawing us or giving us, we cannot come to faith. We are completely lost in our sin. Romans 3, no one seeks after God. As I reflect on my own salvation, my own testimony, I can see a time in my life where I could have cared less. And then I see a time in my life when suddenly it's like a light switch. I want to know more about the Bible. I want to know what this says. Well, why does the Bible say that I'm a sinner? Oh, Jesus died for me? Well, I want to become a believer. What, what explains that shift? It is that God is drawing us. He is calling us to himself. This is Paul's defense of God's wisdom. He says, consider your calling. Now look at the pattern here. Now that we've set up the word calling, that explains the pattern we're about to see. Not many of you. Not many were. Not many were. We see this three times. Not many, not many, not many. And there are three specific categories. Not many were wise. Not many were powerful or strong. This is Paul's whole theme here. And then not many were of noble birth. That is a high reputation. So that's the pattern. Now look at how Paul describes their calling starting in verse 27. Not many, but God chose what is foolish in the world. God chose what is weak. Verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world. 
So not many were, but God. This is Paul's point. He wants us to see the contrast between what we were or were not and then what God is doing. So not many, but God, what? Chose. God has so planned this. We see this threefold pattern again. What did God choose? God chose what is foolish. God chose what is weak. God chose what is low and despised. The things that are not. The Greek phrase there is not, it is not as pleasant as the English makes it sound. The English makes it sound, oh, the things that are not. Okay, the things that have no reputation. Okay, big deal. This phrase was used of slaves basically to say you were less than nothing. Despicable. God has chosen those. And the pattern becomes so much richer if you combine them. So I'm going to put them together for us. Not many were wise, but God chose what is foolish. Not many were powerful, but God chose what is weak. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is low and despised. Okay, we're not done yet. Keep looking down here at verse 27. Why did God choose the foolish? God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Why did God choose the weak? Keep looking. To shame the strong. Why did God choose the ones who were nothing? To bring to nothing things that are. So why does God want to shame the wise and the strong and to bring those of high reputation to nothing? Now we're back at verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is orchestrating what appears to be foolish and weak so that he gets the most glory for the work that he has done. God's calling God's use of the foolish, weak gospel. God's choosing the foolish, weak, and despised in the world. It is all so that God gets credit for what God has done. This is the foolishness and the weakness of the gospel that we who are being saved recognize this isn't foolish or weak at all. It's brilliant. This leads to our first point this morning. The Christian's faith is solely and purely because of God. Those are capitalized for a reason. The second point will be very similar, but I'll change out that phrase. The Christian's faith is solely and purely because of God. There is not a single ounce of your faith that depends upon your own knowledge, strength, reputation, genealogy, or, or anything else, or else your reason for boasting might rest in part upon your shoulders. That is why God is doing it this way. Now, this does not mean that we do nothing. The Bible doesn't teach that either. When someone comes to faith, there is a genuine response that is happening to the work that God is doing. We don't sit back and say, okay, well, God's just in control of everything. We're just going to let him kind of do whatever. No. Whenever we hear the gospel, we hear it, and we respond, and we say, yes, I, I place my faith and trust in Christ. 
What this means is that we don't contribute anything to our own salvation as if part of it is due to something within us. That's what it means. It doesn't mean I don't do anything. I'm still responding to the gospel. I'm still a responsible person that makes responsible decisions. What it means is that I don't contribute anything to that. As if it wasn't clear enough, Paul continues in verse 30. He says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So why are we in Christ Jesus? Beginning of verse 30. Because of him. Who is him? God. We are in Christ Jesus because of God. It is because of God that we are saved, that we have faith. And what is it that God, through Jesus Christ, has done for us? He has given us Jesus and pulled us into his Son, who has become to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Jesus is our wisdom. All throughout the book of Proverbs, wisdom manifests itself through action. The wise man does this, the fool does this. The fool gives full vent to his anger. The wise man responds with a gentle word and turns away wrath. James, sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament, makes a similar point. James 3, 13. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So wisdom can be seen not in the knowledge that we have, but in the things that we are doing based on what we are being taught by the Lord. Jesus is our wisdom. As Christians grow in Christ, their conduct is growing, and that is wise. Jesus is our righteousness. This is a legal term that describes someone's status. When God looks at us, he doesn't see a righteous or righteous status. He sees Jesus' righteous status. He looks at the paperwork, and he sees, okay, well, I mean, all this has been worked through. looks like you're righteous even though our actions did not line up with that our entire lives. The scriptures often speak about how Jesus has given us his righteousness. That's what this means. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our sanctification. Jesus is the one who has set us apart to be holy as he is holy. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, he says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus desires for us to be set apart, and because of his work in us, we can be. And Jesus is our redemption. Jesus has taken a defiled person, an unclean person, and redeemed him. We are restored and cleansed and redeemed and set apart for a purpose. We've been redeemed. Paul's whole point here is that all of these things are because of Jesus, and all of that is from God. Therefore, in verse 31, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is why when we sing, we sing so much about the work that God has done and who God is. And we don't really sing so much about the work we done, we have done. We don't sing 
amazing brain, how wise the thought that led me to the truth. We don't sing that. What do we sing? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Who healed our blindness? Correct. Did you heal your blindness? I'll tell you right now, I didn't heal mine. I was lost and without a clue. I was lost and without a clue. Who is it that finds us? He didn't hear that one. God. The more central you see God as being to your salvation, the more heartfelt your worship of him will be. Sometimes the reason we don't sing quite so loud is because in that moment we have forgotten just how meaningless our contribution to our salvation really is. Isaiah, I didn't write this down, 64.6, I believe, talks about how our works are like filthy rags. It's as though our good works were taking a clean rag and dipping it into a bucket to wash our car, but we don't realize that the bucket we're dipping it into, this, it represents our heart, it's just full of muddy water. So I've got this nice rag, I dump it in this muddy water, and I'm just smearing it all over the car. Well, I put soap in it, it doesn't matter, it's dirty water. That's like what our good works are. We contribute nothing and the more that we recognize that, the more heartfelt our worship is going to be. And I don't mean worship here as merely singing. You will have more heartfelt service. Singing, obviously. Service. Tithing. Focus during the proclamation of God's word. Evangelism. Study groups. Prayer. Compassion. All these things will be magnified as our view of God's role in our salvation is magnified. The reason that, we don't, that we're not as heartfelt in some of these manifestations of worship is because we don't see God as being essential to our salvation as he really is. And we usually don't do this on purpose. It's usually not on purpose that this happens. A lot of times it's very subtle to the point that we have no idea what's going on. And the best example to give ties right into Paul's point here in the overall passage. Imagine a group of Christians who've heard different, preacher, different preachers and they say something like this. Well, so-and-so's preaching is so much more powerful than what's-his-name's preaching. This type of division decentralizes God in his work. It's as if the power came through the instrument rather than the one to whom the instrument is intended to point. It attributes credit to the preacher's style or his wisdom or his power of persuasion. Do you get what Paul's trying to say in the overall argument of 1 Corinthians? There's a real danger of something else other than God getting credit for what only God has done or is actively doing. There's a hidden threat here. 
There's a danger. Why is Paul making such a big deal about this? What does it matter that someone has these different preferences of the style of the teacher or the preacher? What does it really matter? There's a hidden threat, and I'm going to give you the second point, and then I'm going to show you what it is. Number two, the Christian's faith is solely and purely in God. So solely and purely because of God, and now solely and purely in God. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I, when I came to you, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power." so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In today's day and age, what wins people over and convinces people is celebrity status. If you get someone behind a camera on television, especially a name that you recognize and get them to say something, people will just believe it. If you want evidence of that, look at everything that's happened the last three years. I don't have to get real political to say that people on both sides of the aisle say, uh, there's some stuff going on that people didn't catch on to, and now this is all coming up. What is going on? It's because we, and I don't know if it's an American thing or what it is, but we have this thing, when we see someone famous say something, it's like reason just goes out the window sometimes. And then we think about what they said later, and we're like, well, wait a minute, hadn't so-and-so been saying that the whole time? Like, why is it just now hitting me like this? Or that doesn't really make a lot of sense. When a celebrity says something, it carries weight regardless of how much it does or doesn't make sense, regardless of their education level, regardless of their experience in that area, and it's all because of their platform. This is why we see an actor that will get up for an interview and say something about society and the economy and give these statistics, and we think, oh, wow, that's so powerful. And if you stop and think about it, you're an actor. You're not a trained economist. Like, what, where are you getting these stats from? You go back and look, and it's all wrong. It's bogus. Why does that happen? Why do we buy into these things? It's because of something within us that causes us to do that. Well, in Paul's day, it wasn't celebrity status that did that. It was rhetoric. The ones who were the most convincing were the ones who had trained their rhetorical abilities to be able to communicate well. That was something that you actually went to school for. You trained in rhetoric. You went and learned how to dialogue in the public square. How is it that I present myself and posture myself? What type of arguments do I use to become the most convincing? And there were three specific areas that were particularly helpful in rhetoric. That's pathos, P-A-T-H-O-S, logos, which we'll be familiar with. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, that's logos, and ethos, E-T-H-O-S. These three areas were tremendously influential. Pathos had to do with emotional appeal. You want to, if you want to be convincing, you have to pull at heartstrings. If you want to sell the vacuum cleaner to this mother, you have to convince her that her children need her time and energy and love if they're going to grow up as loving adults. This vacuum will take your three-hour job and make it 30 minutes. Imagine what they would be like to have an extra two and a half hours a day with their mother. Imagine their emotional development. Suddenly all the moms are like, 
I'll take it. I'll take three. I'm giving it to my friends, right? This emotional appeal. Find something to grab a hold of in the emotion. That's pathos. Logos had to do with logic and reason. The presentation of an airtight argument. They developed all these different fallacies and say, oh, that's a straw man fallacy. You've taken my argument, thrown it out the window, constructed your own argument, and you're just attacking that. That doesn't make any sense. When you hear something like that, you're like, that's very convincing. Now tell me your argument. I want to hear this. Then there's this ethos, and it had to do with the reputation of the speaker. It's where we get the word ethic from. You want to come across as someone who is trustworthy, virtuous, credible. I can trust that person. He's a police officer. He's a judge. He's a doctor. Maybe you're seeking medical advice. We look for someone that seems credible or virtuous or trustworthy. So the more of these things that were present, the more your rhetorical ability improved. And they would go to school and study this like we study philosophy in college. We still use many of these techniques today, but back then they were trained in these areas. When Paul says he did not come to the Corinthians with these techniques, with this, I, did not, I decided to know nothing among you. I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He recognized my audience is going to be looking for these things. They're going to be convinced, and in their minds they're going to say, well, let me just hear what he has to say. You see it all through the book of Acts. We'll hear this teaching again. Come back tomorrow. They want to know if the rhetorical ability of Paul is better than the rhetorical ability of someone else so that they know who to believe. But in that moment, their faith isn't really resting in God, is it? No. Who's it resting in? Paul. So he recognized that, and he said, I decided to know nothing among you. This doesn't mean that he didn't use reason or emotional appeals or present himself as a credible witness. Rather, it means that he didn't lean upon these things to convince or persuade people. Verse 5 explains why. Why, Paul? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If Paul had leaned on these things, he might have convinced many people to become Christian. But when the next big speaker comes along, who is even more refined in these techniques, guess what they would have done? Now they'd have followed that guy. That kind of faith is not going to last. It's like the sower who goes out to sow the seeds and it lands in different areas. And then there's the one seed that the roots were just real shallow. And what happens? The storm comes along or the heat comes and it just dries up. Those roots were not deep enough into the soil. That's what Paul is warning against here. This is the whole point, starting from chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, that all of you agree. This is the whole point that he's been making since that verse. You should not be dividing over these gospel teachers because your faith is not in the gospel teachers. Your faith is in God. There's a real danger that some, if not many of the Corinthians in the church, had placed their faith in the preacher and not in the one being preached about. Paul recognized that. That's why he's talking about this. We see this in the modern-day American trend of church shopping. 
We unintentionally place our faith in a preacher, usually due to a stylistic preference or personality. And when that preacher is gone, what happens? People leave. What does that reveal? Not always, but a lot of times it reveals there was an unhealthy attachment to the preacher rather than the one who was being preached about. In these moments, our reasons for boasting lie partly in the instrument of the gospel and not solely in the gospel itself. I only like the gospel when that guy says it. When you put it like that, it makes a lot of sense. What a wise instrument. What a strong instrument. What a famous instrument. That's like going up to a famous trumpet player, and they are blowing away. And you say, wow, that piece of equipment in your hands is beautiful. Look how shiny it is. I really like how yours is polished, but that guy's isn't. Well, guess what? Swap the instruments, it's going to sound largely the same. The quality might be different, but the power in the music lies in the lips of the guy blowing into the horn. The horn is an instrument. This is what we are all tempted to do because we are sinful people. You and I, we are sinful people. We live in a sinful world among other sinful people. So guess what we're going to do? We're going to do this sometimes. That's why we need the reminder of God's word to say no. No. It should not be like that. And this is why God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom. In God's wisdom, he doesn't choose the wise or the strong or the noble or else we might idolize and worship those things. He chooses those that are nothing so that he might get all the glory and so that our faith might rest in him and not in his instruments of mercy. God really is wise and powerful, even if we don't see it in the moment. This isn't to say that God never calls the wise or the strong. Rather, it's to say that those things have no bearing on whether or not one is called. We are called in spite of those things, not because of them. The only reason we are called is because God is gracious. He has graciously extended to us an invitation to be saved. The one who realizes that won't be shaken in the faith when something happens to an instrument of God. That person's faith wasn't in the wise, strong, reputable instrument. It was in God. That means we can have a pastor who has a moral failure and our faith is not shaken. This is part of my testimony. The student minister that led me towards the Lord, he is not a Christian today, which means he wasn't then. And for a long time, I struggled with that. Do you know why? Because my faith was in him and not in God. And God did a great work in my life. He has anchored my faith in him so that now it really doesn't matter what happens. I know who holds me. You see, the problem 
of the division in the Corinthian church wasn't just a petty division that threatened the peace of the church. Paul recognized it for what it was. This is a credible threat to faith in God and worship of God by slowly transferring the seat of our faith to something or someone else. The division was a threat to proper faith as it decentralized God in favor of which of his instruments were preferred or desired by the individual. Church, may we not repeat the error of the Corinthian church. May we keep our faith where it belongs, in God, because of God, through Jesus Christ, according to God's word. Amen? Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for speaking to us this morning through your word. We recognize that from you and to you are all things. We give you the honor and the glory and the praise for the work that your word has already done in our hearts this morning as we've heard it sang and proclaimed. We give you praise now for the work that we know your word is going to continue to do in us throughout this week as we dwell and reflect upon these wonderful truths. Lord, forgive us in our attempts to rob you of your glory by giving it to another. Lord, you know, you know us inside and out. You know our temptations and our tendencies, how we are easily led astray to lesser things, how according to your word in Romans 1, we are tempted to be drawn away from worshiping our creator to worshiping the things that have been created by him. Lord, please protect us from this error. Do not allow us to be pulled astray to the worship of your instrument rather than the worship of you. Cause us to glory in the gospel, in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the forgiveness of our sins and of all the sins of those who turn in repentance and faith. Lord, empower us with the knowledge of this truth that it isn't our wisdom or our speaking ability that is going to lead someone to faith, but it is solely your power. Remove our fear from us as we seek to evangelize in thinking that we might not be effective because we just don't know enough. Lord, we thank you that you are the only wisdom that we need, that Jesus is our wisdom from you, that we can share what he has done, and that it is exactly as you have purposed it. Lord, thank you for saving us and redeeming us, not according to what we have done or deserve, but simply according to your grace and mercy. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.